The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18 is where we are going to be. We we do not put these verses up on the screen, so I'd love for you to grab a Bible. Uh, If you have a phone or a tablet, you can open that to 1 Samuel 18. Uh, We have hardback black Bibles that you can take underneath every chair. 1 Samuel 18 is on page 241, and so feel free to turn with me there. Uh, 1 Samuel, uh, as as you're going there, If you are newer to the church, you might not know this. If you've been around for a while, you will certainly know this. But when my daughter was three years old, uh, she's now seven. So you can do the math in your head. I'm done doing math on stage because people correct me all the time when I mess it up. But uh, when my daughter was three, her entire world revolved around the movie Frozen. Frozen. I mean, and I like... I, I banked on that illustration for years, okay? And she has since grown out of that. Praise Jesus, all right? Because uh, I had, uh, let it go, right? Like, just let it go. So I was over that pretty quickly, um, but she loved that thing. In fact, she used to enlist every member of the family to play Frozen, uh, and we would be different characters, okay? So, so Harper, my daughter, was uh, always Anna. She loves Anna. Okay, that's who she was. She was Anna. Marcy, my wife, was Elsa, uh, and I, of course, was Kristoff. Okay, that made sense to me and to her, of course. Our dog, uh, Betty, our little Boston Terrier, was Olaf, the, the snowman. And, and for some reason, Grammy was Oaken, uh, the yoo-hoo guy. And uh, you know what I'm talking about? In the, it was unfortunate. I don't know how that happened, but that, Grammy was Oaken always. But now here's the thing. Harper loved Frozen, but she only liked parts of it. She liked the whole movie. She liked parts of it. And it's really not one of those movies that you can put on to babysit your kids while you go and take care of some other stuff. It's just not. Not that we would ever have done that, okay? But uh, never, never. We would never have done that. But, but that's, it's just, there's some scary scenes in it for a three-year-old. And so we, we would have to watch it with her. And there were parts that she loved, okay? She loved it when they were gonna build a snowman. You wanna build a snowman? You know, that stuff. She loved that. She loved it, okay? She loved Olaf. Like, I mean, she has a Olaf, a squishy Olaf that's like four feet tall. I mean, it's a, it's a big Olaf, all right? Uh, she loved, loved Elsa letting it go and building that ice castle, spinning magic and all that. She loved that stuff, all right? But there were some parts that she didn't like. She, she, she didn't like uh, when Elsa creates a terrifying snow monster to attempt to kill her sister, which just real quick, that's Disney, y'all. Sketchy, all right? That is unwise, okay? That's just sketchy and inappropriate. But she was scared of it. She was scared of the snow monster. Uh, listen, some of you are not following this illustration at all, and God bless your ministry, all right? <laughs> God bless you, God bless you. A lot of you are with me, okay? She didn't like that snow monster. She didn't like when Hans, the evil guy, was mean. She didn't like Hans. Uh, she didn't like when Elsa started like fighting with ice. It scared her. It unnerved her. She didn't like to, she, she would like avert her eyes. And so we would fast forward those parts of the movie. She just liked the pretty parts. But here's the thing. Because she only saw the pretty parts of the movie, she didn't understand the whole story. She didn't get that um, these girls were orphaned 
when their parents were tragically lost at sea because we fast forwarded that part. She didn't get that Elsa cared so much about her own self-identity and self-expression that she would put her entire society at risk and almost kill her sister. I mean, I almost feel sorry for myself that I know all these things, okay? I, you just, I shouldn't know these things, but, but she thought that the movie was just about beautiful princesses and a talking snowman, because we'd fast forward through the scary parts. She didn't want any of that. And, and I bring all this up because I think that's sometimes how we can be as Christians. I think we love the happy parts. Right? I, I mean, we love that God is gracious and, and loving and that he's about restoration and about hope and about salvation. And we love to hear those messages, those things about God, those things about Christianity, but... But we don't, however, like to hear about the harder parts of following him. That might be a little bit more scary for us. But I'll say the same thing that I would say about my daughter and her relationship with Frozen. If you don't know the hard parts, you don't know the whole story. And because we preach straight through books of the Bible here at Fathom, we can't fast forward and, and only preach the the fun stuff. Like if you don't know the hard parts, then, then even this book, it's just a, a girl in a dress with a talking snowman. It's, it's nothing more. It loses all of its power and meaning. So today I'm calling our sermon, The Hard Parts. I'm calling today's sermon, The Hard Parts. And, and now that you're all beaming with excitement and anticipation, uh, let's, let's, engage our text a little bit, okay? Uh, the context. Let me set the context for where we're at in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We find ourselves in an interesting moment in David, his life, in David's life. David would be the second king of Israel. He would be the greatest king in Israel's history. But at this point in 1 Samuel 18, he is not yet the king. There's another king on the throne, King Saul, and Saul has some issues. And these two men in chapter 18 are going in completely different directions, all right, uh, King Saul has been rejected by God because of his disobedience and unwillingness to heed God's call. He has been rejected by God. The spirit has been removed from him and his life is on a downward trajectory. Whereas David's life has been blessed by God. He's been successful in everything that he has done and the hearts of all of Israel are now with this guy and they rejoice in the victories that God's giving him. He's a young man at this point. He's probably uh, late teens, early 20s, but this is making Saul angry. We saw this last week. Uh, Saul is getting angry. He's getting discouraged, and he's becoming more and more obsessed with destroying David's life. And we can kind of sum all this up with what we covered last week. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 12, we find a summary of where we're at today. The text says that Saul was afraid of David. There's the fear piece because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. That kind of sums up where we're at, the context for our passage today. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to work through the rest of chapter 18 today. Uh, we will study the passage. And then after we've studied the passage, I want to make some application in the second half of this sermon. And that's where we're going to talk about the hard parts. Okay, that okay with you? 
Doesn't matter if it's not. All right, let's <laughs> jump into our text. First Samuel chapter 18. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week in verse 17. Somebody asked me after the first service, what would you do if we said no? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I would do. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahathalite, for a wife. All right. This is, seems kind of like a straightforward bride exchange passage uh, if we did not have that little thing in the middle of the passage that said Saul's trying to kill David, right? It would just kind of be like, oh, there was a bride and it didn't work out. But this is actually Saul's second attempt to kill David in an underhanded method. It's actually his fourth time trying to kill him. Right? You remember the first time uh, when he gets upset with David, uh, we, he recognizes, Saul recognizes that David is destined to be king. And so he, in his anger, attempts to murder him with a, a spear, right? He attempts to pin him to the wall twice. Remember that? That was last week. But uh, David is like some sort of shepherding ninja and evades that thing twice, right? And uh, evades. And we said last week that David is probably chalking that bad behavior of Saul up to uh, Saul's disorder with this evil spirit. We might, we might use modern words and say uh, that Saul had, had um, a, a mental health crisis and that's why David thinks, oh, that, Saul, Saul, that's why he tried to kill me. He's just in a bad way. But then after that first attempt on David's life, Saul wises up and he moves into secret. He goes underhanded with the, his methods to try to kill David. And the text says that he gives this teenage kid a thousand soldiers and he makes them the commander. This untrained warrior kid, shepherd kid, he gives him a thousand guys. And the text told us that he hopes that he's going to fall in battle. That's the idea, underhandedly. But back in verse 14, the text says that David had success in all of his undertakings because the Lord was with him. So now Saul thinks, as we turn to our verses today, that maybe by giving David Merib, his eldest daughter, in return for prolonged military service, that if that happened, he would eventually be taken out by the hand of the Philistines. This is a decent plan. This is a decent plan. And actually it's fulfilling something that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 17 before David kills Goliath, the giant Philistine. He says, whoever takes out Goliath will receive my daughter, her hand in marriage. So he's trying to make right on that promise. He has not made right on that promise yet. And he's also trying to take out David. David doesn't see himself to be worthy as a part of the king's family. That's what he says. He's a nobody from nowhere. And the king would try and make him a part, like a son-in-law. He says, what is, who am I? That's kind of his thing. And just as it would seem that David is going on this upwardly mobile track to become part of the king's family by marrying his eldest daughter, Saul reneges, and he marries her off to someone else. 
That's what the text tells us, okay? Saul didn't actually want Merib to marry David. He made that offer before he knew that David was gonna kill Goliath, and now he hates David, and he wants to make good on that charge, but he doesn't really want this guy as a son-in-law, and so he hands her off to another woman. That's, that's what the text has just told us. Let's look at verse 20. It gets real interesting here. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. So this is his younger daughter. Saul has two daughters. We found out about them much earlier in 1 Samuel. Michael loved David and they told Saul and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And Saul commands his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has, uh, has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. So um, the eldest daughter, Merib, is out of the picture. And we find out now that, that, that Michael, his younger daughter, actually likes David. She loves David. And so Saul now decides to trap David by his other daughter's genuine love. Now note, he does not want her to actually marry him. He comes up with, we'll see this. He comes up with a plan to take David out before he ever becomes his son-in-law. He does not want David as son-in-law. We will see that. But, but on the surface, it looks like Saul is trying to welcome this guy in. And likely Saul thinks, I've got another chance here to destroy David, not only to make good on my promise, about the whole Goliath killing thing, but actually to take him out. And I just want you to notice something that we talked about last week. Saul is able to utilize his very daughter's love, welfare, and goodness for his own evil purpose. Just how evil must you be to throw your youngest daughter and her love to the wolves, as it were? He's willing to use Michael's genuine love for David to meet his own evil needs. And it's what we said last week, okay? Fear will cause you to do some things that you didn't think you were able to do otherwise. We're seeing that manifest. He's willing to even put his daughter's future at risk over this. So the king's servants, they tell David, the plan, but now his response in verse 23 is similar to his response earlier with Merib. Look at verse 23. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ear, ears of David. And David said, does it seem like a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so, thus and so did David speak. Then David said, thus shall you say to David, or then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Okay, here we go. David, once again, in humility says, I'm a poor man. Who's my, what family am I from? And he's probably at this point worried about the tradition of a bride price, a bride price. Now, a bride price was an ancient custom in almost all ancient civilizations where money was paid to the father of a woman whom a man intended to marry. 
A bride price was widely practiced in the ancient world. And because David was a poor man from a poor family, in order to marry this girl, a a rich girl, he would have had to and been expected to provide a hefty bride price because the king's daughter would normally be married off to a very wealthy man or for political and and societal kind of marrying strength, like strength of your home uh, ideals. And so this is a loss for the household of Saul. That's what David is worried about. So on the surface, Saul comes up with a plan that makes him look great. Saul is generously willing to accept a poor but valiant suitor for his youngest daughter. Okay, and and instead of setting an exorbitant price for her hand, he respects the honor of of the bride price, the honor of David, the honor of Michael, and it's better than him just letting him have her for free. He sets a different price, but we're told that that his motives are to get David killed before he reaches the altar. He wants David to perish at the hands of the Philistines. And so Saul sets a bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. And this is why I didn't have Corinna read that section of the scriptures over us. Just didn't want you to go through that, Corinna. Uh, You're welcome. A hundred Philistine foreskins. So you might ask, what's a foreskin? Well, the Philistines were uncircumcised. Okay, we, we, do I need to say anything else? Is that enough? Okay, we feel good? Everybody here went to school. Okay, so we know this. All right, good. Uh, so Saul says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fight my enemies, the Philistines, and I want you to kill a hundred of them, do a little post-mortem surgery, and then come back, bring me the foreskins so that I know you killed not just a hundred dudes, you killed 100 uncircumcised Philistines. And his whole bet is that David will die in the process. That's his plan. And now before you get totally grossed out or freaked out over the thought of this, uh, this was completely normal behavior in the ancient Near East. Ancient peoples would do this all the time. Usually it was hands or heads of the slain who were brought to prove that one team had a victory over another team. We have this all through different ancient writings. The ancient Egyptians would always require the hand of their enemies to be brought to the king so they could count how many were slain. Uh, But this was normal. And for the Hebrews and the uncircumcised Philistines, Saul wants foreskins. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 26. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. David gets after it, right? He's like, "I, I can do this. No cash, 100 foreskins, I'm in. And so he gathers his crew and he goes out and he does it. Saul's trying to get David killed and David doubles down and brings back 200 foreskins, which I don't know how you transport that, but he he did it, okay? And the text says that they were given in full number to the king. I don't know what that looks like, but I mean, he's like making it rain, like 200 foreskins for the king. Did you think the Bible was boring? Do you think the Old Testament was boring? 
It's not. This is incredible stuff, okay? Um, this, is, this is, by the way, this is sacred, sacred literature here, okay? That's what happened. And in that, the eyes of Saul, the eyes of all of Israel, David not only proves his valor, but he now receives Michael, his love, and they get married and they have beautiful babies. And that's the end of the story, right? Well, not quite, not quite. David, yes, is now the king's son-in-law, but things don't turn out quite so good. Look at verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. This chapter ends with Saul recognizing, again, that the Lord is with David. It's not that David's just good at things, it's that Yahweh is with David. David, and he knows that all of Israel loves David. And now he knows that Jonathan, his son, loves David, and his youngest daughter, Michael, loves David. And oh, by the way, now he is Saul's son in law. Once again, Saul's treachery, his plan has backfired. Instead of killing David, he, his attempt has given David honor. And all the people see it. And now David is the king's son-in-law. He has been strengthened in his claim as the successor to the kingship. So here's what I want to do with the remainder of our time. I want us to focus on this idea that the Lord was with David. We've seen this repeat three times in this chapter. The, the words, the Lord was with David. It, we saw in verse 12 that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Saw in verse 14 that David had success in all of his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And then we just saw this in verse 28 that Saul, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. And when things are on repeat in the Bible, those are things that we are meant to take notice of. The Lord was with David. And this is what I wanna talk about. David is the anointed future king of Israel. He is a man who is blessed greatly by God. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. This is a man who had been given great success. How then do we make sense of Saul being his enemy for all his days? The question I want us to answer is, why would God allow such trouble into the life of this man that he obviously loves and blesses? Why, why did David have to deal with Saul. Saul's gonna make his life for the next couple decades almost a living hell. His father-in-law, by the way, not making any sort of illustrations about in-laws, okay? Love my in-laws, but why would, why, would, why would David have his heart played with like this? Why would a good God bring such hardship into the life of this good man? How do we explain the hard parts? How do we explain these things? So that's what I want us to do with the rest of our time. I want us to talk about the hard parts. The hard parts in the life of a believer. The hard parts in the life of, of one of God's children. Why would God allow hard things to enter 
into David's life, but into our lives. How can he do this? Isn't he a God of love? Isn't he a God of grace? Doesn't he want good things for us? Doesn't he promise us blessings? Like what in the world is going on here? So that's what I want to talk about in the remaining time we have. Let's, let's start by, by saying this. I want to consider one aspect of David's life and of the life of a Christian. If you're a Christian, this is true of you as well. And I think this is undeniable. And that is one aspect of the Christian life of the life of those who follow God is triumph. Triumph. As a Christian, as a follower of God, you will experience triumph in some areas in your life. Maybe not every area that you were hoping, but, but in some ways, I'll just say this, life does get better when you start following God. There's some areas that, that you can be freed from some of the bondage that you walked in before you started following Jesus. There's triumph for those who do follow Jesus. So let's not just kind of turn into morose, kind of saddened, you know, ashes and sackcloth people that, that our life, we, we start following Jesus and everything is awful. That's not the case. It's not the case in David's life. It's not the case in our lives. This, is, this should be good and right and, and, and encouraging. There is triumph for those who follow Christ. David is a man of character. He's a man after God's own heart. And even with this evil plotting of Saul, the Lord will protect him and preserve him. The Lord was with him. So triumph is a part of the Christian life. But if there was nothing more in David's story, if it was all triumph and we never saw any of the hard parts of his life, and I'll just say it like this. The Bible at that point could not be trusted and all of this is a lie. If, if the text was, and the Lord was with David, period, nothing else happens and he just kind of floats through the rest of his life in perfect sanctification, then, then we as Christians would be forced to fake it for the rest of our lives. If the Bible says uh, anything to us like this, then it cannot be trusted. Here's a message that sometimes a false gospel will be preached that we call the prosperity gospel, and it preaches this message. And if you hear this message, I encourage you to reject it. The message that goes like this, Jesus makes everything better. Jesus makes everything happy. If you have Jesus, you won't struggle, you won't hurt, you won't lose, you won't cry. All there is with Jesus is rainbows and Skittles. That's the message. You give your life to Jesus and there are no more tears, there's no more sadness, there's no more loss, there's no more perplexity or confusion, there's no more anguish or despair, depression and anxiety, poof, they're gone. And all you're gonna do is just skip with gladness through the rest of your life. That's the message the prosperity gospel. And hear me, if that were the message of the Bible, then here's the question. What happens when life don't look like that? What happens? If that were the message, what happens when your life does not line up with that? Well, we'd have to pretend. We'd have to pretend that we're actually doing better than we really are or we'd have to come to the conclusion that we don't have the faith that we hoped we had. 
And God help us, many Christians are playing that game today. But this is not how David's story goes. The text does not stop with, the Lord was with him. So yes, God can give you triumph, but there's more to the story. And it actually made me think of Hebrews 11 this week. And so I wanna do a little something here. The, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 is listing uh, what we call the hall of faith. This is where I like to go when I talk about uh, suffering and hardship in the Christian life because the, the writer of Hebrews is listing triumphs, triumph after triumph of these men and women in the Old Testament of faith. Abraham had faith. Isaac had faith. Jacob had faith. And actually in the list, our boy David is mentioned. I'm gonna put this up on the screen. Hebrews eleven thirty two 32 says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. That's triumph language. And listen, that's awesome. Sign me up. Closing the mouths of lions? Yes, please. Escaping the sword? Yeah, I'll take that. Like this is, this is, this is, do you want to build a snowman? Yes, I do, right? Like that's what this is. The Jesus version of it. So yes, God can give you triumph. But there's more. And, and man, the text doesn't even take like a break. There's not even like a paragraph break. There is a hard U-turn in the middle of verse 35. Look at this. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Praise God for that messy, messy paragraph. What that's saying is, yeah, there's triumph, but there's also trouble. Do you notice there's like one parallel that's on both sides of that equation? Some escaped the sword and some were like chopped in two. I'd take escaping the sword over being sawn in two. We all would. But the Bible is presenting us with no guarantee. Actually, there is a guarantee. It's both. In this life, you will experience trial. And in this life, you will experience triumph. So here's what I know. That's what my life has actually looked like. And I know most of your stories, not all of your stories, but a lot of your stories, and that's what your lives have looked like. This is the way that life actually works, y'all. It's not all rainbows and Skittles. 
It's not all like happy clappy. It's not like all, you know, out with your wife on a date night, taking a picture, posting on Instagram with a filter to get a bunch of likes. Like that's just not how real life plays out. It's not how it works and we know it. And any version of Christianity that has been so scrubbed up as to make it this clean, happy, clappy, skip through the rest of your days kind of version of Christianity should never be trusted. It should be rejected as anti-gospel because it's just not how life works. And listen, it's not how the Bible says life works. In fact, what we just saw is that the Bible says, hey, follow Jesus. It could end really badly. Giving our hearts to Jesus does not mean for the rest of our days we will not struggle. But that, the misconception there, is why so many are prone to despair and ultimately will give up on their faith. Because when the waves start rising and the seas churn up and it gets a bit choppy and unsteady, we think, I've either got to pretend or I'm out. But Jesus doesn't give us any false hope in this. Like Jesus, in fact, tells us these very things. John 16, he says, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have troubles. Not you might have. In this world, you will have troubles, have tribulations, have trials, have pains, have sufferings, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Those are, that's Jesus language. It's not Paul. You could maybe, ah, Paul, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Although I think he knows what he's talking about. That's Jesus. That's the source. So I want to end with this. I want to give us two seemingly opposite truths that I think you can pocket and take to the bank with you. Two biblical truths that I think that we might see them as opposites, but they are both true and you need to bank on these for your life. Here they are. Life is hard and God is good. Don't those seem like they don't fit together? Like they're puzzle pieces that you'd have to try and like mash in to fit. If God is good, then why is life hard? That's what we'll ask. But I think these two truths are things you can put in the bank and put your life on. Life is hard and God is good. Life is hard. We see it in David's story. We see it in Hebrews chapter 11. We see it in our own stories. Tell me I'm a liar. If we opened up this mic, again, you could come up here all day and give testimonies of how your life, even post-following Christ, how your life has been hard. Life is hard. And now hear me, you may not like this, but hear me. There's no way to escape that. Please don't believe any charlatan that would peddle some other message to you till he returns or takes me home. Life will be hard. No one is exempt. Life is hard and God is good. And God is good. Now here's where I want, I need to do a little bit more pleading with you. It's harder to, to convince you of this one. 
but I wanna plead with you. Some of you may not hear this, but some of you will hear me. God is more about your good than you are. Hear me. God is more about your good even than you are about your good. And you are about your good. You absolutely are. That's why you eat at the places that you eat, because you like them. That's why you wear the clothes that you wear, because you like them. That's why you have choices to be friends with the people that you are friends with, to marry the person that you marry, to go to the school that you go to. You have these choices, and and you are about your good. But By the way, you're an expert in it. You're very good at, at being about your good, but God is more about your good than even you are. I will prove it to you. If we were honest, no one has been more horrible to you than you have. You may have had horrible things done to you, but no one is crueler to you than you. No one has made worse decisions for you than you. No one has lied to you more than you have. No one has sabotaged you more than you have. No one. In fact, if I were counseling you about how you were treating you, I would tell you to break up with you. (laughs) You ever heard you're your own worst enemy? And here's the thing, you bring trouble on yourself. I look back at my life, I look at all my mess, almost all of it. Some of it was others inflicted, but so much of it was self-inflicted. We bring troubles into our own lives and those things, those troubles that we bring on ourselves, they almost always lead to guilt and to shame and to regret. So yeah, you are about your good, but you're also bad for you. But the troubles that God brings our way are different. The troubles that God allow in, allows in our lives are always ultimately for our good. There's something that occurs in the troubles that God gives us that grow us into holiness that are for us, not against us, but for our good. Even when we can't see them, even we are short, though we are short-sighted and cannot see ultimately how they could ever be for their, our good, we can trust that biblically God is good. He is for our good. And that our impl- implies all of us. This is why Paul can say, um, Paul can say that all things work together for those who are for, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, even the hard parts. There's just something about the troubles that God allows in our lives that help detach our love from the things of this world and make us more and more like Jesus. They're purposeful. And so author uh, J.I. Packer, he puts it like this. He says, still God seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things 
and attach it to himself. So church, did you know that God will sometimes break your arm? He will sometimes inflict serious pain in your life to get you to let go of something that would ultimately kill you. Sometimes God will hobble our leg, hurt us very deeply, even maybe cause us to walk with a limp for the rest of our lives rather than let you wander away from him. I've got testimony of that. I'm assuming many more of us do as well. These are the hard parts of following Christ. These are the hard things, the hard parts. In church, we, we, have, a, we have a good father, a good God, a good dad, a good king who gives good gifts to his children. But one of the good gifts that he gives us is the gift of pain. He allows for it and he uses it for our good. And we're going to see this more as we continue to walk in the life of David. And y'all, this is the hard part of the movie. This is the scary scenes that we want to fast forward, but I'm just telling you without it, you won't understand the whole story. And hear me, David is going to need this. He's going to need this because things, like I said, don't get better from here. And frankly, I don't really know any godly people, maybe modern people who are men or women after God's own heart who, who've had a really easy life. Like when I think of the saints, the older men and women that I look up to, that I aspire to be like in my spirit, when I see them, I don't see ease. I see, I see perseverance. I don't see floating through life. I see life knocking them down and then persistently falling to their knees and asking Jesus to pick them back up again. And so what we can learn from this whole life is hard and God is good idea is that Christian, there is purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your trouble and God never wastes the hard stuff. He puts all things together for the good of those who are loved and are called according to his purpose. Your troubles are not meaningless. Even when, and maybe even especially when, you don't have the sight or the perspective to see how they could possibly be for your good. And the reason why we can believe this is is because the cross itself is that. The, the cross of Christ is the most complete example of God purposing pain for his own glory and for our ultimate good. That's why we call it Good Friday. The most painful and gruesome tragedy in history is when God sends his one and only perfect son to save the world and we murder him on a cross. And all hope looked like it was gone. It seemed that the enemy had won, but the cross 
teaches us fully and finally that God is good, that he is in control and that he is for us. If someone will die for you, then they are for you, not against you. So I'll close with one final quote from C.S. Lewis. This is what he says in his book, The Problem of Pain. I love this quote. I say this all the time. We can ignore, ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Church, may you know this. In the triumphs, in the good, but also in the troubles and in the pain, that you have a good Father in heaven who is faithful. Life is hard and God is good and he is enough for you. In this life, you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, these really are the hard parts. There may not be a bigger stumbling block historically for men and women from trusting and believing in you, Father, than, than suffering and pain, than evil and trouble. And while you don't call us to make light of our hardships and our troubles and our pains, you do, you do ask us to trust. Like a dad to his child, just beckoning, trust me. Trust me, I love you. Trust me, I have your best in mind. Trust me, you're gonna want this the way that I have it planned out for you. Trust me, the edge is, is near. You're gonna fall off and hurt yourself. Just come back to me. Trust me, I'm here. I'm good. I am for you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that, that even today there might be some who are wrestling with this. This, isn't, this is not a practice in the theoretical for them today. This is a reality that they walked in here bearing that trouble isn't something that's on the horizon. Trouble is right now. And so to those, Lord, I would pray that my words won't have much effect, but yours will. And so Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Right now, give us an extra filling, a dose of your presence, an encouragement where we need encouragement, maybe a slap around where we've gone deaf or blind or, or we're losing hope. God, as painful as it is, we ask you to, to bring trouble where we might be lacking if we need it. Break us in ways that would cause us to cling to you and let go of other things. We trust you that you're good, Father. And we believe this, but help our unbelief. So as we transition to worship, Lord, as we transition from information to, to really trying to let this marinate in our hearts, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do your good and powerful work in our lives. Enlighten our hearts, we ask. And we pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus, and by the power 
the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.